Hello, this is Micah Evans, and welcome to the Torch Time Podcast. Uh, we first want to take a minute to apologize for the delay in releasing this episode with David Daly, the third part of our Torch Time team. It was important for us, um, for the first three episodes, to be kind of an introduction to the hosts of the podcast. Luke and Dave and myself, while friends, all three of us reside in different parts of the um, borosilicate pipe slash art world which is one of the reasons we think this podcast is valuable to the listeners. Um, there's a diversity of direction and thought between all of us, which is uh, why we teamed up to do this. Um, this was a very interesting interview for me to do. I think you may be able to hear the nervous or uncomfortable tone in my voice during this interview. Uh, that was due to the subject matter I knew we were leading up to in the latter part of the interview with Dave that being the touchy subject of glass production overseas. Uh, as many of you know, that can be a hard subject to delve into, not just in the glass industry, but in the larger conversation about manufacturing and the ever-growing global marketplace. Uh, from the start of the interview, I knew that was a subject Dave and I were going to discuss, and honestly, I thought I knew how to navigate it, but I quickly found I, I didn't. Um, we actually re-recorded the interview, trying to approach the subject from a different way, but in the end, Dave was adamant that the first interview, even with that awkward tone, fit the awkward nature of the subject matter and was a sincere conversation about his life and what can be a touchy subject in um, his you know, business. Uh, so here is my interview with David Daly. Thank you so much for your patience and thank you for listening. college what kind of job did you did you get a job or did you just start doing doing your own thing um no I, I immediately went to work at a mortgage brokerage firm and I was in the thick of that during like uh, it was like 04 so or uh -huh. I guess oh late 03 to 04 and I um you know kind of saw a lot of that subprime mortgage lending a lot of the 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 you know predatory uh um, aspects of the mortgage industry, which was really interesting to see at the time. And looking back on it, I, oh, I realized I realized why it was as hard as it was, um, because you know being ethical in that industry at that time um, without tenure was uh, you know nearly impossible to break in. So um, so yeah, I mean I I wanted to get out of that. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do, but again, you know I still don't know what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wait. So I'm, I'm really like so other than being a podcast host yeah we we <laughs> it's funny we we both are secretly addicted to podcasts and have been for a long time oh you could uh, your secret baby i tell everybody yeah I yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like being a vegan you know it's like right. yeah um yeah no i did i did too and then i realized that my podcast tastes are so i've I used to be kind of so highbrow about my taste and what I listened to, and it slowly devolved into, like, I, I just feel so bad. I have all these great podcasts, and I feel so bad that I'm doing other things while I'm listening, and I can't absorb it. So I'm like, I just need some, like, you know, some bullshit to listen to while I do my work that that isn't necessary. I don't need to listen to every little second, and that's, I work so much, 
that now my podcast list is just trash and it's great. So I don't talk about it nearly as much as I used to. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. I'm now. I'm. I'm. Let's see. You're. I gotta be. I guess you gotta be in mid twenties at this point, coming out of out of college and into oh, that. Um, yeah. So timeline. I. Um, yeah. So oh three oh four. I was born nineteen eighty. So I was twenty four, and that was that was the 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 inception of the gravitron so 04 was the like april of 04 was you know the moment where i was sitting at the bar i'll never forget mike pravda sitting at the bar and he was like hey man you know whatever happened to that gravitron 2000 thing that you were gonna make (laughs) and he was like hey i you know if you if you make it i'll i'll make a website and we'll sell the shit out of these things and um and so i was like yeah i'll make it and um, I had made these things, gravity bongs, uh, all throughout college. I was a big gravity bong fan. Yeah. And, um, you know, just make them with Jim Beam bottles, you know, score the bottom of it with just a little $3 Home Depot scoring knife, put it in boiling hot water and then in cold water, you know, wearing a, like, astronaut suit so I didn't get shrapnel in my neck. And <laughs> um, and then I, um, and, you know, I would make these often. And, I, you know, I, I was convinced that, like, you know, I could do do it with all glass. And um, and so we'd put it into a little trash can. And I also even bought oneies that, you know, little chillums. And, I, and so cut out the, the, the caps to fit a chillum instead yeah. of, like, just a, you know, a foil bowl. So, you know, we were already making more sophisticated gravity bunks. But, um, you know, I wanted to make one that was polished. There was nothing on the market. And um, still really isn't anything else on the market in that category. But... Um, you know, we set out to do it and, you know, really shortly after I, you know, we found out about the whole Tommy Chong thing that happened. You know, this is something you talked about. This was a, you know, really dark time of the industry and, um, you know, they just shut down 55, um, you know, online retailers and head shops. And, um, and so, you know, immediately Mike was kind of, you know, Mike's role was effectively, you know, made, um, obsolete. And I, but, it, but you know, by the time we figured it out, I had already decided, hey, I'm going to make this happen. Right. And um, and actually, I went back to I was living in Houston. And I went back to that same you know to BC Smoke Shop on Westheimer. And um, oh, it's because I should take a step back. It, it, when when I was, uh, you know, are, do you want me to talk yeah. about the Gravitron story now? Yeah, yeah, okay. please. Yeah, no, I'm ready. Like so. I was just kind of like, I was. I'm really curious about what led up to that because like that's the part I really you know. And I still there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but this is where I want to get to and maybe if you could also just take a minute to explain um for those of you out there i don't even know if kids these days know what a fucking gravity bong is you know but um oh well you know they have google uh, i'm gonna yeah, yeah you know, okay. if you don't know what the gravity, gravity bong is you're gonna need to google it at this point <laughs> pause <laughs> all right the, back. Uh, no right now we're back we um so I, I set out to, uh, you know, when you set out to make a product, you know, I didn't really have a product development background. So I, I uh, you know, I immediately went back to what I was doing in college. And so I went and fished a McCormick's vodka bottle out of a dumpster, Sam's boat, actually. It was on Richmond. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might still be there. But um, I, I took it out, cleaned it, you know, scraped the, scraped the logo or scraped the label off. Um, and then right around the corner from that place was a Benzwanger's glass. And I went there. It was around Mother's Day. And I went to the, uh, yeah, so Mother's Day 20, you know, 2004, I, I said, hey, I want to cut the bottom of this bottle off because uh, I want to make a, a custom vase for my mom, right? I want to tell them what I was doing. Okay. And 
uh, you know, they basically said, look, there's no way to do that, you know, cleanly. And they're, you know, one of the guys in the back is like, oh, no, man, I can do it. Bring it back here. And so, he's, you know, they invite me back and they put it into this little vice. And then they take this little Makita wet tile saw, really. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, they, you know, put, you know, put a score in it, rotate it, put a score in it, rotate or cut it, yeah, yeah. You know, rotate it, cut it, rotate it, cut it, rotate it. And then took a 600 grit um, uh, sanding pad and polished the bottom of it and was like, there you go, bud. And so I have a flip phone at the time. I take that flip phone, press, you know, take a picture of the Makita saw, go home, order it. Nice. Yeah, it was $200. It was my first business expenditure. And, um, and it was a big one at the time, you know, yeah. I wasn't, I didn't have any money. And, um, and so I, um, and so, then, you know, then, then became the, the process of, of figuring out what kind of bucket I was going to put it into. And so I'm searching buckets and, um, and, you know, there's just no uniform bucket for a, for a McCormick's vodka bottle. Right. And, um, you know, so I was just fixated on what kind of bucket I'm going to put this in when my mom hands me a, uh, a Kendall Jackson wine bottle. And it was like, you know, that was the moment. It was one of these, like, one of many eureka moments where it was like, oh, okay, I need, I can't use a liquor bottle because liquor bottles aren't uniform. They're all different. If I'm going to get a vase that works for this or a base that works for this, I'm going to need, you know, and I want it to be glass, then I need something, I need a, a to start with a bottle that's all, it's going to be the same every time. Right. And so that's where, you know, it became a wine bottle. Um, and then... I went to Michael's and Michael's had a three and a half inch cylinder vase. I'm sure they still do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, now we make them custom, but, um, but they, uh, um, that ended up becoming the vase. And I, I had, uh, and then I had the problem of how to put the, the downstem in the bowl in, you know, cause right. I, you know, I didn't know how, okay, well, am I going to use the cork somehow? And that, you know, that was just like, you know, blowing my mind. I couldn't figure it out. Right. Yeah. It's, and it seems so obvious after the fact, just like any design, right. You know, design yeah. is when you figure it out, it's like, Oh, of course. Oh, but like reverse when, engineering is fucking great. It's yeah, awesome. Exactly. And so everything's con- there in front of you. You just so have convenient. to, yeah. Everyone's like, yeah, I could have thought of that. Yeah. Like, well, okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah. not. Um, <laughs> The point, the point was, is that I, 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 I just took it to the head shop. That's, you know, coming back to the head shop, I, I walk in, I see George and, um, he's the owner of BC. He now lives in Austin, but he started that one on Westheimer and he was the one that, and he, he said, oh yeah, let's just see what we got. And he, you know, jumps in the back of the, of the, uh, behind the counter and says, and grabs a down stem in a bowl and sells me a down stem bowl for like $15. Right. And, um, and it, it fit. It was a you know little grommet on on the outside of a downstem, twelve millimeter downstem, nine millimeter slide bowl. These are what were sold yeah, yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. You know, slide bolts were still common, and um, and so that's that became the 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 bolt uh, for the gravitron, and um, and then it was you know obviously immediately a question of production. So how I was going to make these. And so George sent me on kind of a wild goose chase to find this guy on Harwin named JD. And, you know, if JD's ever listening to this, I love you. You scared the shit out of me. He, uh, I, I just basically wandered down Harwin and saw, you know, and saw these guys kind of hanging out in a parking lot and walked up and said, Hey, I'm making this gravity bong and, you know, I need these downsons and bowls. Do you guys know where there might be this supply house for, for these bowls for my gravity bong? And this guy just about bit my head off. Do you know what the fuck you're talking about? You get people in trouble talking about like bongs and shit around here. Get the fuck out of here, kid. And I just, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that I, I shat my pants a little yeah. bit. And, 
um, you know, I literally like started running off and realized like, no, look, I, you know, if I'm going to get this done. I need to just be like, you know, apologize, say, I'm sorry. Do you know anybody? And so, you know, I go back and I'm like, listen, you know, I'm so sorry. Is there any way that we can, you know, I promise that this is something that I, you know, going to be, going to be a great product. He invites me in and, and ends up becoming my supplier, long story short. And, yeah. um, you know, I ended up getting those from him for a long time for like, you know, the combo of like $3 and 50 cents, which is an important fact because so that's were those, a very, you know, yeah. that's, that's, that might seem cheap or, you know, $3 and 50 cents. But when you're trying to bring a product to market mm-hmm. that you sell for, you know, that you need to bring, you need to get to retail at $50. Yeah. Um, you know, your costs need to be, um, you know, so the sum, you know, the sum of its parts, the BO, the bomb, right? The bill yeah. materials. Um, you know, you, you've got, you need to have $5 max right. into that. Um, so, uh, so paying $3 and 50 cents was just unsustainable. Yeah. And, and I did that for a really long time. So was he, um, was he just kind of a, uh, distributor middleman or was he making these things or was that distributor middleman? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. God, it's so funny thinking. I'm imagining you too, also like not coming from the the uber hippie side of the or the kind of the underworld part of this industry, and then kind of getting you know just jumping in and having to deal with not even just not even people that are making this shit, but the guys in the middle, which are oftentimes even the shadier motherfuckers. Not JD, if you're listening, I don't know you, I don't, you know. <laughs> but um, you know, in my experience, like that that had to be a very interesting part of the the birth of Grab is kind of really kind of then getting to know the world you're going to be really dealing in too. It's, yeah. It's and it became, it became really apparent to me when, so shortly after all of that happened, I moved back to Austin, right. which I had been threatening my parents. I was going to do for a year. And, um, I had an opportunity to sublease an apartment and I came to, you know, quit the, quit the mortgage job, came to Austin and decided I was going to make these full time. And hmm. that's when I started to bug the glassy knoll, you know, bring yeah. it, bring in Carl and, um, and I would go up there and, and ask these guys if they could, you know, if, if the, it was always having problems with the base and, you know, getting it blown. I wanted to have it blown. I wanted this to be part of that culture and, you know, implementing it was a really big challenge. And so, um, you know, first of all, they decided, you know, they said that they would sell, sell it on commission. So they were my first account. They let me put the Gravitron in the glassy knoll yeah. and they would give me 70% of the sales. So I mean, it was great for, for me, yeah. great for them. They didn't have to put any, put out any cash for inventory. Um, and I sold a lot there. It was great. It was like, you know, that, it's just 04, was, it's summer the, of 04. Yeah. And that is the legendary Austin head shop. I'm sorry. But when I came here, that was the place. And even in 2007, you know, Carl was, uh, I still like Carl has no idea how much of a legend he is in my eyes. Me, oh yeah. Me too. If, yeah. Yeah, if, if people don't know how influential that shop was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't get to see it in its time because yeah. it was really special. It was pretty freaking cool. Um, but the, you know, that's, that's when yeah. you know, he's a p- big part of that story and I'll bring in the bull and downstem part because I, I was buying these for this price and I knew that I needed to get away from that. And that's when I, I came to him and said, it was actually, it took, it probably took me a year. It was probably the, the next summer that I finally convinced them to teach me how to make a downstem in a bowl. And I, um, you know, that's when I started building the taster machines and yeah. making downstems and bowls and, you know, realizing that the sum of the price of that, of that raw stock was yeah. going to be a fraction of the $3 and 50 cents I was spending on it. Well, and then this is where your, um, engineering 
think brain kind of comes back in and and uh there's a we're sitting you know probably 20 yards away from a handful of these taster machines that you just mentioned if anybody is wondering it's kind of this he built basically a one-sided frankenstein little mini lathe you know is i mean is that basically that's exactly it i mean i you know in that interim year i had been buying everything you know i should i should mention um fred from uh humble glass uh you know, Freddie had been selling me his seconds, bowls and downstems yeah. for that whole year. And he would tell me, yeah, man, you just turn a, you just turn a drill upside down and put it in a vice. And then you just, you know, open the chuck. Well, that, that seemed like really ridiculous to me because you have to like get the, make sure that the, 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 yeah. the, the, uh, the triggers, you know, closed and it moves really fast. I needed something that I could actually pare down. You know, you want RPMs to be right around about 120 RPM, which how do you do that with, you know, with something, you know, finding you know, go find me a 120 RPM motor, right? right? It's just really unavailable. Or if you do find them, it's going to be very expensive. So, um, you know, so what I the way I did that was just by taking a standard Dayton motor um, that is about you know 1150, and then putting a seven to one she ratio on it that brings it back down to about 120, 128. Yeah. So um, you know that got me my RPMs, and then I would actually, and then I actually bought a you know nice Jacob chuck yep. so that I could slap it open, so it never had to stop, so I didn't ever have to stop the machine. I could just slap it open, put a new piece of stock in. And then grab, grab it and it, it closed. Until it closed. And yeah. then, you know, and then I had everything. It was like, you know, my Meisenplatz, right? Everything is in its place. I knew where exactly where my, you know, where my graphite rod was, all of my stock material. Yep. I had my nail boards and everything was set up to where I was making, you know, I could make 500 downstems in a day and about yeah. 100 bowls. Yeah. So, um, you this know, it just yourself. crushes you, you out. yourself, right? Or, oh, yeah. And yeah, I did yeah. that for four years. Yeah. 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 Golly. Yeah. I've, I've probably made, more bowls than anybody I know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know, aside from Shauna. Well, right? I mean, that's the foundation of, um, you know, anybody of our, I say our generation, but, you know, anybody that's been doing this um, for more than 10 years, um, that heavy production was a huge part of our, whatever it was, you know, was that repetition was just a huge part of how you cut your teeth with the material, you know? Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. So then that was still just for the Graviton production at that point. You had, had you expanded past that, just that one um, item? Or is, is that pretty much the foundation, that one thing that your company kind of, the first couple of years, the one thing you produced? Or was that, there a that, lot of that failed? Was, that, no, 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 actually, no, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. The, the, I, um, I did think that I was going to disrupt the world with the Gravitron, right? It's it's a very, you know, this is, I'm going to use this as a commercial for the Gravitron, but it's a very efficient smoking system, gravity bongs. You know, you don't lose any smoke yeah. if you do it the right way. Whereas, uh, you know, and not that that smoke is, you know, is, is that precious. In fact, it's getting less and less precious every day as, uh, as cannabis becomes legal. But the... Uh, <laughs> it's a very efficient machine and so uh, product, and so I, w I was expecting that this would be the great disruptor of the industry. But the truth was, is that I was just never going to sell more than about a thousand of these things a month, which was great. I mean, I would I could do you know a couple hundred grand worth of revenue, but you know my you know I I basically came up for air in 07 with about $80,000 in debt and really nothing to show for it, right? I right. didn't own my house. I didn't have, you know, I know my shop. I didn't have, I had some orders. I didn't really have any inventory. It was just like this moment where I was like, uh, you know, um, I need to shit or get off the pot here, you know, do something else or or start um, or start figuring out how I'm going to get bigger. Um, in 
and that's and that's when I started trying other stuff. I tried the waterfall. That was that was a failed product. Um, it was kind of a reverse gravity bong. Uh-huh. Um, I used a separatory funnel and this in this you know totally uh, that was yeah. that was my first experience dealing with a, a company in China. I, I ordered twelve hundred of these things and um, literally six hundred of them were broken when they arrived and there was no there was no respite. There was that's you know, it. I, I, it was you know they were ghosts. Um, so that was that was a really bad experience. Um, and, um, and, you know, but what, what made the, what really turned the, allowed me to turn the corner were tasters, right? Like w- w- this is, this is a product that, um, so around 07, I was going to ACL fest and I would give these things away. It was just a little, you know, I used the same stock that I was making the bowls on yeah and, you know, 12, seven by 2.4. And I would, um, I just make a little restriction in it. So, you know, a tiny little bowl, leave the, leave the side open. I could crush these things 300 a day easy no problem right, right? Mm-hmm. and and then i was putting these little gravitron decals on it and i was like okay i'm gonna use this as promotion for the gravitron just right. give them away totally. at, these, at these you know yep. uh festivals and i saw one of the i saw mick from the gas pipe there and he was like hey come see me on monday and bring me some of these things they're kind of cool you know and, uh, yeah, i'd buy some and so I show up there and he's like, you know, I, I had, I had, I had the whole thing planned out. I was like, okay, you know, I got this, you know, this test tube rack and I got 50 of them in there. I'm like, all right, I'm going to sell these, I'm going to sell this rack for 125 bucks. I got to like, or sorry, I'm going to sell this rack for, for, uh, it was like 65 bucks. I, that's all planned out. And, you know, so he goes, well, how, you know, how much do you want for these things? And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I was thinking about 65 for the rack, about a dollar 25 each. And he looks at me and he's like, listen, you can sell these to me for a dollar twenty-five or two dollars and fifty cents. I'm still gonna sell them for nine dollars. And I was yeah. like, well, then they're two dollars and fifty cents. And that and that was that was a huge lesson for me. Yeah. I mean, it was like you know you can't you, you the lesson being like you can't just look at the at your products from the perspective of of how much material and time it costs to make. Right. You you know you it's it there is a very real fact that you can you charge what the market will allow. Well, and it's so funny, and this is something that even, um, you know, I made that mistake too. And when you're struggling, you know, and you know the minimum amount you need to make to make a profit, right? And then, and to make your ends meet, you know, that becomes, somehow that just becomes your wholesale for e- equation for everything, right? Because mm-hmm. you're just so used to drowning that just breathing air is like the only thing you need to do. And you forget that sometimes, that there's a whole equation past that, you know, relative to the market and how what, whatever you're making, and yeah, and then and uh, I think that's a very common first mistake to to people that are starting to sell for the first time, especially to retailers like yeah, that. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing is that retailers aren't going to tell you, this. buyers aren't going to tell no. you that. The only reason why Mick was, was able to do that was because he's a manager. You know, he was a manager and he was a friend. You know? He'd been selling that, and he was like, "Look, he doesn't actually see the exact profit from this." So he was like, "Dude, you're pricing this wrong," and. You know, so few people have that opportunity to get honest. You know. you, yep. The only reason I'm sitting here right now is because an employee at the BC Smoke Shop did the same thing for me. Steve, who works here and is now working for Baller Section, you know, I brought a clear prototype in to him that was like, you know, what do you think of this? You know, and he's like, this is the shit. This is the new thing. You know, it's like, great. You know, I need like, I can't remember what it was. You know, I was thinking like, you know, 80 bucks for these. And he was like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? He's like, well, how about 250? And I was, and he's like, and, and I was just like, okay, great. That's <laughs> awesome. You go ahead and pay me 250 bucks. You dumbass. This is going to be great. You know, shows up the next day. Like 
all right, we sold that in like 20 minutes. What do you have? And it was like, these were clear prototypes. And so I just kept making these clear prototypes and he kept coming in and like, um, anyway, it was, it kind of launched this, what I do now. And this was a year, you know, almost 10 years ago, eight years ago. But, um, if it wasn't for him, I'd probably be still, you know, once every three months cranking out wrap and rake fume spoons just to make ends meet. Um, because I, I didn't, didn't have the confidence in my work to, to do that kind of math, you know, yeah. it's a lesson that now you're really lucky. I mean, yeah. I was too. Um, so sweet. So that's really when kind of Gravitron was born. So the, well, so that, this, that changed this promotional material that, turned into the, the, the profit margin. Yeah. The tasters ended up being this magic for me and it wasn't that Gravitron's had bad margin, right? I think that no. I ended up selling, I mean, I think that they cost me about $10 to make and we sell them for about 20 bucks. I think that that's basically still true. Um, the, the the tasters were were at the time better margin than that um and you know but ma that was mainly just because i was making every single thing myself i think that right. the, the the cost of the materials was six cents and so if i was able to make 300 in a day you start to do the math on that that's an enormous amount of money now you can't sell 300 every single day especially not starting out right so you know there's some flaw in the logic but um but it definitely got me out of i mean six months later i was out of debt and i had found my first lathe which is a great story, and I'm going to tell it because you're nodding. Say, you're, like, okay. I was just, so, no, I was. I'm trying. <laughs> so that 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 HSJ that is next that, door. That's next door. Yeah. That's it's the blue one. Um, and uh, if, you know, for those of you that can't see it because you're listening, it's a it's a uh, it's a bench top HSJ three foot between bore. Um, and uh, the HSJs have about four and a half inches of, uh, of, of bore through. It's actually uh, one so, of, it's, uh, what I call is probably one of the most perfect machines for, for pipe making. I it's mean, perfect it's, now, but at the yeah. time, that's very small because you got to remember like two big tubes. Oh, yeah. We were working with, with like two four foot bongs back then, right? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was like this is when people like, you know, like Zob and Roar, they're doing, they're doing 65 mil yeah, yeah, yeah. neck down big beakers that, you know, it's, it, was, it, was, yeah. it was big. But I mean, the HSJ is like something that you and three other dudes can move, right? It's not. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. You don't need a forklift. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's mobile, relatively mobile absolutely. for lathes um, and solid. Yeah. So I, I was literally, it was, it was a moment. It was a moment in time when stars align and you just like, you know, it, it's, it was pure magic where I was on the taster machine and I just like decided I was going to take a break and I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what? I should start looking for a real lathe. If I can make, yeah. if I can make these oneies, I can make a, I can make a bong. Like I, yeah. I, get, I get this, like I totally get it. And so I get on the computer and I search Austin Craigslist, nothing. I search Houston Craigslist, nothing. I search Dallas Craigslist and up pops a, an, a, an ad. You know, I think I searched glass lathe Yeah. and the ad specifically said glass or sorry, lathe for spinning five inch glass. That's it. That's it. Phone number. Wow. So I call on it. The, 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 the ad had been posted, like, uh, I want to say like 45 minutes before I searched it. And I call the number, and the guy answers the phone, very old, you can tell. And I ask him to send me a picture. Um, and this is, uh, this is the beginning of, uh, sorry, yeah, this is the end of 07. And he says, you know, I don't, have, I don't have a way to send this picture. I don't have email. I posted this on whatever. If you want it, I'll hold it for you until tomorrow, but you have to come and get it. And I was like, is it, you know, what, what brand is it? I don't know. What condition is it in? I don't know. 
you just have to come up here and see it. So I had no clue. So I borrow a friend's truck. It was a three, four hour drive. It was north of Dallas. Yeah. And I I show up at this, you know, at, at a ranch and we drive like off road to this barn and he opens up the door and there sit, you know, sitting in the, in the barn was this, this lathe and, um, and he wanted $120 for it. So you talked him down to what eighty, and then uh, yeah, <laughs> that's when that's no. Nuts. So well, I've, I ended up finding you know this this barn was an yeah. old it was an old scientific shop. He explained. So was to there me, more stuff in there besides to- tons of stuff? Oh, I got Jesus. so much stuff. I mean, it was all it was a it was a shop that made um, vacuum tubes for oh, the man. military. That's like that's like a fan. It's like we dream about that kind of <sighs> thing, you know. That's right. It was it yeah. was literally the stars aligning, and you know, and made. It, you know, it changed my life. And, yeah. you know, let me just be clear that I ended up spending $5,000 to get this machine where it needed to be to oh, make. Oh, yeah. Well, still, it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know. That's right. Yeah. Um, with, with Brandon Callahan, which is a whole other conversation. But, um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was the story of that first machine. And, and, you know, I came back home with, like, all of this vacuum tube gear, which I had no idea what to do with and ended up sitting around <laughs> for four years yeah. before I figured anything out. Um, but that was, um, you know, th- that, that changed everything. That's when I started working with Shauna and Mike Howard and, yeah. um, and I, you know, I said, you know, bought, you know, bought this machine and started to, started to make tubes. So Carl taught me how to make my first I, bomb. This and, is when I, I started, that I started hearing your name or I started hearing your name, but this is when we met. Okay. This is, I can track it back now because this is when I was like, you know, Carl had, I think maybe the glassy knoll was either ending or in uh, on the rocks or yeah. yeah on the rocks you know and i knew um i was working at a place that sold some raw supply and every once in a while one of your people would come in and be like you know i'm working down there you know and, and um so slowly and surely but started to hear about you and then then you popped in the studio yeah i, I lived up there yep, yep and then yeah so this is when the crew starts to assemble, you know, this is like the, the, the X-Men origin story when like everybody starts to get together, you know, and some of this crew is still together and some of it's not, some of it's come and gone, you know, as studios and people do. A large but, part of it's still together. Yeah. Though. I mean, we've only lost a couple of people. This must've been a really fucking fun time in grab history when like you're expanding and getting all this equipment, new people, new possibilities. And then I think you probably start to realize like you can now design more than, than yeah it was it, it, this this was i mean looking back on it this was the beginning of that exercise in um in product design that i think you know we're just now eight years later starting to name and um i mean you and i've talked a lot about this yeah. like just you know from a fundamentals perspective from a you know from a historical perspective you know we, you know, we approach product design um in a it, in a very interesting way in this industry. And I think that that's what, you know, at least what has brought you and I together is like this, the concept of pipe design from a lasting historical standpoint from a, from, from a, uh, what I mean by lasting is like classical design. Right. Um, There's, you know, there, there, there are styles that come and go, but you know, inevitably with any, um, you know, with any product, based industry which cannabis will always be um you know you have this uh i guess you know i see it as a responsibility to Mm. um 
to create lasting classic designs and not everything sticks. You got to throw a lot of stuff at the wall, but yeah. like that was the beginning of that process for me. And, um, you know, it always ended up being start with infrastructure. So that year was an exercise, you know, that the, the, the three years that followed really 08, 09 and 2010 was massive expansion of, 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 of infrastructure. So yeah. buy, buy as many lays as I can get my hands on and hire as many glass blowers as I can train really. I mean, yeah. we, I never wanted to, I never wanted to hire existing glass blowers. I always wanted to train them. So how, so why was that? Well, because, um, you know, first of all, Mike Howard was a huge influence on that decision, mainly because I, I did not want uh, I, first of all, I had some negative experiences with some glass blowers yeah. that came into the studio that thought that they, you know, the, 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 it's you telling a glass blower what to make is very hard to do. Totally. Okay. No, I totally get that. Um, well, yeah, and a pipe, pipe coming from the pipe world. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so if you right, so I should I should spe uh, specify that the, yeah. these are I did not want to hire pipe makers. Right. Um, but there were no other glass blowers, so yeah. it was uh, it was pipe makers or nobody, and so we. Um, we literally took out an ad in uh, on Craigslist, which was still free at the time. It, that said, um, I took out an ad saying, "Looking for um, hiring a prep chef with at least one year experience." Um, and um, and then once they responded, I told them what we did because my concept was: if you can work in a hot kitchen in close quarters with a sharp knife, <laughs> I can teach you how to blow glass. Goodness, that's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and, okay. Well, then, how many people came up, came in with their freaking their knives rolled up, and like I, I called them first. Okay. I, I, yeah, okay, I, good. I looked at the resumes, called them first to get, you know to gauge their interest. I didn't want to get anybody's hopes up, but yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I got a couple of really good guys from that, and um, a couple guys that are still blowing glass today. So yeah, I mean, that was that was effective. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I know that. Um, I know I've, I've known that case for with a lot of people is that uh, if you have skills as a pipe maker, it's really hard or not ne not necessarily necessary to work for somebody else. Um, given the nature of our industry now more than ever, but even back then, um, you know, it's it's uh, you can always make more money doing it on your own than for somebody else. And I'm sure you've had that experience where. You, even when you train somebody from scratch, at a certain point they get to a certain skill level and realize that I can probably make more money. I, oh, I just buy one of these, get a little garage, I can do this on my own, you know. Well, um, I think they were skipping ahead, but that's exactly what I ended up realizing that I needed to just build yeah. is a place, is a is a is a creative design environment that would attract everybody that wanted to blow glass, you know, at any caliber. Right. And um, you know, that's what we are still in the process of executing i think it'll forever be a uh, a work in progress yeah well it's really unique you know i mean um to have um what i consider very visionary um kind of creating seeing where how much of a kind of the infancy our industry is still in you know and then back then you're just an embryo right i mean it is um we've when you're deep inside this it's really hard to look past what's right in front of you to see kind of in the grand scope of manufacturing and um, creative manufacturing design in the in the world or just in the United States or just in your region, how still um, the wild, wild west it is right now. And then how far we have to go as a community, not 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 that we're behind, but how exciting it is that we have so far that we're going to grow into, like we're going to expand and this is going to be such a great thing. And that 
um, by facilitating that, uh, you know, not only do you get to like witness some really cool things, maybe benefit from them. I don't know. You're just, it's a, re- I think it's, you're helping further, um, kind of speed up th- that growth. And, um, anyway, I'm sure we'll get more into that later as, as well, kind of where we're sitting right now. I mean, we're sitting right now in what is the Grav Labs warehouse or Gravitron's warehouse slash headquarters slash looks half of this looks like an internet startup downstairs looks like a, a, uh, you know, industrial scientific studio, which is halfway transitioning into a very beautiful kind of incubation lab of sorts. There's, you know, a, there's a remodel going on. How big is this warehouse? Uh, 20,000 feet plus the DC, which is 10,000 feet. So total, total of 30,000 feet. Yeah. It's a monster. And it's, there's a labyrinth of all kinds of things that have gone on under this roof. Um, and, uh, man, it's so funny. I want to keep talking about this, but I'm like, we're still like, we're still not even here yet within the, within right. the story, you know? And so, so how big was the first warehouse then? Now, now that we're sitting in freaking 30,000 square feet of, of so I'll, I'll, craziness. I'll, get, I'll get through the growth real quick, yeah. which was, um, you know, I signed the lease at those, at those facilities in, uh, uh, the Thornton road, uh, yeah. complexes yeah. in Oh five. And I, I actually shared the first 1,200 square foot bay uh, um, garage yeah. with a welder. And she, uh, I, I signed her a six-month lease and then uh, promptly grew into that extra 600 square feet. So it was a 1,200 square foot but it was a space I was sharing. And then, um, and then one of the... <clears throat> And then one of the spaces came up available next to me that uh, was another 1,200 square feet. And systematically throughout those years, I ended up taking uh, five of those spaces at that at that at Thornton Road. Wow. So I ended up having 6,000 feet there. And so, um, you know, skipping over a whole bunch of things that happened to get yeah. to get me that, um, I I ended up finding this space in 2011, and um, and it was way too big at the yeah. time. I was like, okay, what am I ever going to do with 20,000 feet? And so that's when I went to Salt, and I knew that Snick was moving here. And I said, hey, you know, I there's no way I can fit in all this space. Do you want to share it with me? And we negotiated a lease with the landlord to add another tenant, and they took this space that we're actually in right now, talking yeah. in. And um, I knew that I, I you know, I always, I always got along great with you guys, and I always wanted to be aligned with who I thought were the best artists in the industry. And so having Salt and Snick and and you and JMass and Kind and um, and the the uh, and the list just keeps going with all the people that ended up coming to Saint Elmo. Um, they they really influenced the the decision to move into this building. And then um, about a year after moving in. I took over the hostess was behind us. And then when hostess yes. went bankrupt, um, I, you know, my landlord oh, yeah. Uh, said, yeah, no problem. You can have that one. So, uh, so that was the extra 10 and, um, you know, the yard in between came with it. So it was, uh, it's really a, a, it's become a phenomenal campus and, um, yeah, I hope to be here for a really long time. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause so the, probably right when you started looking at this place was right when I packed up and moved to Penland, right? Um, to North Carolina. So I, and I left town and, and Snick was moving. Actually, Snick took my apartment. I handed him the keys to my place as I left for 
North Carolina. Um, and, um, you know, the studio was uh, in discussion, really. It still really hadn't even, I mean, I, it's hard for me to think back to know exactly what was going on. But so I moved out, not even seeing this place. And every once in a while, I would come back and visit and just seeing this thing grow and evolve. For you, it's like, you know it's grown and evolved, but it's been a gradual thing because you've seen it being built out and things. But I get to come back every six months and pop, pop my head in and just be like, what the fuck? You know, where did that come from? Who are these new guys? What are they making now? You know, and then, you know, same thing over here on the St. Elmo's side. Um, by the way, this is all under St. Elmo's Fire, Lucan and Snick Studio is all under the same warehouse roof. Um, but it's a different kind of entrance, different... Right facility um so technically we have grav labs grav studios and then saint elmo's fire right so that's the um the bill of 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 uh of uh of people at the at the campus campus yeah, yeah i like that it's a, it is a campus it is yeah <laughs> <laughs> um all right so well this gets me to the point where I, I kind of come back into the equation in my eyes you know and it's right around this time that you even when I before I had left, I had started making this work, um, and uh, with this kind of perk design, I called it a ladder perk back then. And uh, I made one in particular that you, um, or one short series that you were just like, okay, this is this is fucking cool. And then you were you. you it was one you, of the first. It was one of the first, uh, you know, heady pieces I ever bought. It, I remember you asking me if you could buy it. Like it was like like you had to get on a list or something. I'm like, fuck yeah, yeah, you can. What do you you want? This, this is awesome. I'd love you to have this, you know. And then um, I came back from. I would come back one of my first visits, you know, and I think I visited you here the first time, and you gave me a tour, and upstairs was kind of think it just kind of yeah. happened. It was yep. very raw. You know, you're like, and this is going to be a conference room, we think, you know, and like, you know, all these things. And now there's like a, a number of conference rooms. Um, and uh, and in your office, you know, on a rickety shelf, you had my piece. It never been smoked out of look like, you know, it was just like pristine, you know, and I was just like, wow, that's really fucking cool, you know. Um, and even back earlier, you had mentioned, man, I'd really like to do something with you sometime. And, and I never really thought about what that meant. Um and during this time, this design is starting to get, um, as happens, you know, appropriated by other artists and um, kind of spread and people are, are using it and, it wouldn't, you know, knocking it off is, I don't know, it's just kind of how our culture works as the pipe game. It just, ever some, and all, all of a sudden, more people are doing it. And um, they may or may not have given you credit at the beginning, but they certainly don't continue to once they start selling it. Eventually, it becomes their design and that's just how it goes. Um, anyway, that had started happening with this, you know, and I moved to North Carolina where I wasn't making as many pipes and couldn't, wasn't making enough of that work to really put my name on that. And you come along and said, listen, I would really like to, to do something with this. And we had talked about it and he's, and you're like, and it's funny, like the, in the way this industry works is you don't actually need permission. We could just, you know, people can just do this. And he was like, but instead, you know. I'd like, I'd like your permission and, you know, uh, you developed this kind of system back then of working with artists and, uh, you know, paying them for their designs either in, in whatever way that made sense. Yeah. Do you want me to speak to that? Yeah, please. I'm just kind of giving my so, background. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the whole concept of a royalty system, uh, you know, kind of came about by accident with Helix, but, 
um, you know, but it was, it was a very, uh, you know, another one of those eureka moments where I realized that there were artists out there that had, you know, that did not have big production capacity like yourself that had, uh, great product designs like, you know, uh, you know, another really you know major standout is Bates. Um, yeah. you know, with the turbine, the turbine was just appropriated by everybody. And that was, uh, you know, that was a, you know, talk about a, um, a ubiquitous and, and widely, uh, knocked off design. We've, we're still paying Bates for, for that, um, yeah. you know, as a royalty and, um, and it's great because, you know, really everybody wins. I mean, in my opinion, everybody wins. The big question mark that I remember you having for me was like, what is this going to do to my art? Right. Like right. will, you know, will my association with this product being on a, you know, on a production level have a negative influence on my body of work? And, um, I, look, I, you know, I, I still can't speak to that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that it doesn't have nearly as large of effect on someone like yourself as it does on someone like turbo, um, you know, which we did to which we did the circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's, it, uh, you know, but just as a, um, as an annuity, right. Like as, as a, as a, as a source of moderate income, it's, it's like a passive, it's passive income, right. Yeah. So it's a way for us to collaborate on a much lower level or I guess no, I shouldn't say lower on a, on a, on a very, you know, not to a lot of fanfare. Like we, it's, it was an exercise in design and like recognizing design and being able to make that design accessible to a much larger audience. Yes. Well, it, you know, from my perspective and it was, um, you had a lot to think about at the time I was at Penland and, uh, it was it was just really what it broke down to for me was uh, you know and a lot of it was where you for me was the problem was where where maybe you were having it produced right sure and it's another conversation we're about to get into um but which is something i had to think about as well you know because you know you're not just gonna you're not you're licensing the design for me but as well you're also gonna you know let people know that it was it was one of my designs right which is actually great for me because you're giving me credit, right? Um, which is something that, like, when I, when I think about it in the long run, how many of these people that are just knocking other artists, American artists, were knocking this off, not even giving me credit, um, you know, and definitely not cutting me a check, you know? And so and now I had someone that was, like, you know, wanted to approach, appreciate the design, approached me about it, and um, wanted, wanted to use it and wanted to pay me for it. It was just incredibly flattering. And a new way to think about about design or about my work and about design. It really got the wheels turning in my head for something that, um, um, while at Penland as well, like, it was a really important part of my development as an artist. And I don't know if I've ever really been able to like talk to, or illustrate that to you of like how important that was at in my growth as an artist and having to think about that how it's being produced, why it's being produced, all these factors. And it's like more of a complex equation. It's very complex equation. All of this, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that people don't really, I think, put as much stock into is how, how involved this whole process of design is in production. Anyway. Um, so anyway, very cool. I thank you. Uh, it was really awesome learning experience and it's right. You're right. It was this passive income. It's like, I remember the first time I got a royalty check and me going like, Holy shit, that's hilarious. Like, I just got a check in the mail. And you're right, it wasn't a ton of money, you know? Um, but 
and then every once every month it got a little bit more you know and uh and it actually was the first the thing that in those first year and a half of pinland that actually paid my bills um and it enabled me to make all this stuff so it was like it was really cool it was a really fun time for me it was it was just especially when that when you just check the mailbox and you're like shit there's a check this is great. Well, we, we do have a lot of people that, that are on this royalty system now, and I, I, I don't know that everybody can say the same thing as you, but uh, um, right. But but I know that uh, that it has worked in a lot of cases, and um, and it's it's really refreshing to hear you say that. You know, the money the money was great, but I mean, really, I think it was uh, uh, thinking about a larger scale production too. It got me thinking about a lot of different things, and then how you do it, and then. Um, and now I'm lucky enough to be working under your roof as well and kind of getting a, a, another little window into the immense amount of work it takes to, to fucking make this shit happen. Yeah, it's bringing original content to market is a, you know, at scale. Yeah, is something that really no, nobody does. I mean, it's in glass, yes. not, not, in, not in our industry. Um, I can say with relative confidence that we're, we're really the only one that's doing it at the scale that we're doing it. Yeah, I, I was shocked knowing that, like, the, from the first time, I basically, you bought a piece for me, right? And then you you and I kind of went back and forth and adapted that into something that would work well with um, the production. And it really didn't take a whole lot. It was kind of almost already there, right? There were at least a couple of little things that we were like, oh, okay, well, that needs to be that, and then that needs to be that. And that was kind of it. And then... And it never, it was we, just kind we, of... We should name that this product became the upline. Became the upline, yeah. If you're looking still, for it, it's we're talking still about the upline. In the, uh, in the, in the, it's in the grab catalog, you know? Yep. Um, and so, and then recently we're kind of, I don't know if you can talk about this, but we've kind of given me the opportunity to expand on that a little bit. Yes. And maybe do, do a little more work with the company, which was great. And um, so I come back into working with you and now you're like, great, let's do this. You know, you... you I'd had some sketches in a sketchbook. You're like, you're on the right track. Why don't you go ahead and kind of keep going with that and that direction. And then you'll start working with our, um, you know, the CAD guys. And I was like, CAD guys, what the fuck, you know? And so <laughs> I'm going to just for, for you at home, re relay the experience that I just had in the last six months. And I'm normally a guy that goes through this prototyping stage of making it on the torch you know, making prototypes, you know, and this is just for myself, you know, and so I'm just like, great, I'm going to be making some prototypes for these guys, and it's great, and then, so I bring my sketchbook in, I meet with a couple of these guys in the, uh, the design guys, and they translate it to CAD, who take these sketches, clean them up, now they're on the computer, they print out these beautiful, you know, architectural renderings, 3D renderings of these pieces, I was like, wow, those look fucking fantastic. That's great. Um, those are perfect. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, sooner or later, I'm going to have to make one of these because then that goes to your your glass prototype guy who then makes the prototypes. Like basically from beginning to end of this whole process, I never had to touch glass once. Yeah, you're the designer. Yeah, no shit, which has like been my dream. And you had no idea, like leaving Penland, I'm like, I got to figure, I just found out that I love to design. I love to design, right? And being a designer was this like, how am I ever going to do that? And I come back to Austin and you're like, hey, you want to do this? Next thing I know, you've just given my first real world design experience. Um, and it another another huge moment for me. It was so cool. And like how much, how your process has evolved 
in the four years I was at Penland. Well, we were really lucky, I should say, you know, without diving too deep into this yeah. issue, that you that the brand already had an essence, right? Like what ends up happening is that as as products become developed, we you know you, you don't really have a great opportunity to play on the specific functionality or specific design aspect in order to blow out the categories in any given product. And so just to dissect what I just said, it's like the upline had a design aesthetic that was very unique. So we were able to take those those restrictions, that ladder perk that you, know, that, that you were talking about, and we were able to, you know, bring those into the design element of a one hitter and a spoon and a right. steamroller and a bubbler and a big bubbler and a, you know all of this all of these categorical products that we know sell really well in stores yeah yeah I mean I, I did luck out in the fact that there wasn't a ton of um, like um, kind of prototyping R&D to make sure it's gonna work right because it, it was an aesthetic that was able to adapt easily into kind of existing production lines with minor adjustments. Um, but uh, anyway, it was really cool. It was fun. Uh, and that just kind of gives a, a better picture of kind of the, the scale of, and the kind of, I guess it's the modern kind of, the way you're thinking about design is is much more aligned with kind of modern design and production than what we've been thought of as that we've thought of in the past as kind of what we do in this industry. Um, you know, you don't, guys are still mostly in their garages out there. Most people listen to this are either in their garages or just don't, don't have a clear picture or the picture they have, or like just guys at the bench, you know, making one piece at a time. And, uh, it's kind of a, it's, you're not in the, you're almost in a different world. Me personally or the company. Both, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I've, 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 I've seen. I've obviously seen a lot, and you know, of a lot of uh, a lot of ways that people have produced. I've been in hundreds of glass blowing facilities, and um, I, I definitely have a perspective from the production standpoint that is probably unique. But um, you know, I wouldn't say that for, you know from an artistic standpoint. I, I feel like I'm uh, still in my infancy. Right. Like you know, I see what you guys are doing, and I see what kind of you know the, the way you're incorporating colors, which um, which we haven't done yet, and we are working on you know on our pattern composition and color composition. But that's not something that's really that scalable or sustainable right, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that will change as you know guys like. Abe go to get much bigger productions, you right. know, in other you know, for, of of their color, um, and you know, sorry to name people, but um, I uh, I know that this is a this is something that as demand stays, uh, you know, stays it continues to rise. Yeah, we, w- the supply will will grow to meet it. Yeah, and um, and inevitably that that scale will um, will find its way to larger scale production facilities. Well, this I wanted to talk about. At what point did you kind of maximize your production capabilities at the studio here in Oh yeah, in like Austin? 2010. Like once once I once I realized that I was out of space and I had to move to meet, you know to be able to you know buy more lathes and hire more glass blowers. Yeah. That was the moment where I was like, you know, I just gotten married, I wanted to start a family and I was like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep buying more machines and hiring more glass blowers and moving into bigger spaces. It is unsustainable. Right. And it's in when it was killing me. And um and not that that you know, not that my passion ever changed for glass blowing. Yeah. It was just a matter of like you know, of of being able to maintain 
sanity and, yeah. and not feel like I was overworked and underpaid. And, um, and so that was, uh, you know, so, so the, 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 the choice to begin outsourcing was one that was, um, you know, a very belabored, uh, decision for me. And, um, and I went, I, you know, I kind of had a, uh, and I'll never forget in 09, I, I kind of, uh, traversed the country looking for, um, facilities like, you know, um, you know, took designs to California, Oregon, Jersey, and, um, you know, trying to, trying to get, um, some, some people to, to produce stuff for me, yeah. um, to scale. And, um, you know, everybody's prices were fine. You know, there was like, you know, they, you know, yes, no problem. We can make this. And then nothing just, you know, you silence yeah. <laughs> radio silence from everybody, you know, the biggest production facilities in the country. And, um, and so it was, you know, it was back to square one, you know, do I continue to try to buy more machines and hire more people? Um, so that's where, you know, enter, uh, enter the beginning of outsourcing outside of the country. Right. Which I'm, which is a huge topic within our industry and always has been. Yeah. And, and I think that, that I, I've got a unique perspective on this. So I appreciate you letting me talk about it. And, um, that is that there's, there's a fundamental difference. I, you know, I, I can't say this with enough passion that there's a fundamental difference between taking a product overseas and saying, copy this, make them as quickly as possible, as cheap as you can. Right. Versus taking a product overseas and saying, this product is my baby. Take your time making it. Price is not important. Right. Because you know what happens when you say that? People respond right. in any culture. They have pride in the products they're making. They take care of the, you know, they, the, the owners take care of their employees just from that one statement. Yeah. And it's, it's changed my life. Like these people that we work with are amazing people. They're, they're, we, you know, I've, I've, I've visited, I've, we visit, I mean, we visit every other month. Um, we break bread with them. We are very close with their families. We make sure that they are all being taken care of and that our production is sustainable. Uh -huh. Um, and you're about to make this, this voyage with me. So you're yeah, going to see the same crazy. thing. We're about a week away from me going to China, which is actually my first trip out of the country, which is, was my secret until about a week ago. And you looked at me <laughs> like I was fucking crazy. And uh, I, I still think you're crazy. But yeah. I hey, think you gotta I start somewhere, too, but Hey, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, and this brings me back to when I was, I kind of danced around it talking about when I started working with you with the upline of like really having to consider what that meant for me, yep. you know, and what, how that would reflect on me. You know, and that I'm putting my name on this and you're getting heat, some, you know, from some parts of the industry for for outsourcing, you know, and I deep knowing you for as long as I did, I didn't have a problem with it. I thought it was great. And any right. reason to keep working with you is awesome. And, it, and the only thing that which is unfortunate was like, well, how's what are people going to think about me? You know, um, which is totally fair. I sure. understand that, you know, and um, uh, it was a really hard decision for me. I can imagine. Um, especially being at Penland, North Carolina, which was the, um, it's all handmade artisans up there, right? Sure. Um, and it wasn't until I, I actually finally got the ball to start asking around to these guys in their 60s, these craftsmen, you know, um, you know, started being like, listen, this is my, this is what I'm going through right now. You're like, that's amazing. What's your problem? You know, and um, 
it's that bubble yeah it, it's it, it's industry it, it's it's a such a complex uh, equation such a complex thing but um it, which which is which is why it's totally okay for it for some people not to approve of it and for some people to not think it's a big deal yeah i respect I, I respect people's opinion i understand both sides of it um but you know the the one thing i don't stand for is that we're taking away jobs um that's that's fundamentally untrue um you know from americans like that's uh i'd say that we've 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 created you know multiples uh you know you know exponential amounts of jobs yeah. um from from this scale and you know that's you know to say that is to say that the industry isn't growing um you know as as we create more production that in turns you know creates more salespeople, creates more admin creates more more store clerks in stores creates more stores period right okay there you know this this industry is still in its infancy there will be more stores opening there's there we have not hit the ceiling we are far from it yeah and if you know, as we are, we are way under capacity for meeting the demand of the of the common uh, of the common of the public for 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 pipes and pipe design. And um, you know this this thing that that you know that I talked about earlier with the with the the story that you tell your partners um, that is you know that in our case is, is the, is, is the, uh, you know, is our, is our passion play, right? This is, this is what we do is, you know, we're in this for the long term. We are in this from a design perspective. We want to, we want to create products that last, um, in the marketplace for a very long time. And mm -hmm. the way that you do that is through great processes and great people. Um, I, I want, you know, I, I relish the opportunity. I thank you for giving it to me to, to say that, these the people and the products that we you know that that we work with and for are you know they come first and are you know obviously our you know we we couldn't survive without our retail partners and we are you know obviously you know this is we are only b2b we don't sell direct to the end users and so we rely on those shop owners to uh to be able to deliver these messages and there and it's been hard to, to 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 control that message that what we make is cheap or uh, lacks quality because um, you know that's also a fundamental you know lie um, yeah. we, we 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 our our products are not cheap they we you know, we we do pay a premium to 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 make sure that we don't bring a pro, a subpar product to market and um, and so that's, uh, you know, I can't have this China conversation, have a whole bunch of people out there going, well, it's just, you just lump all of this, you know, cheap China, cheap China doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it is not, it's, it's, it's definitely it's, changing, right? It's, yeah. You know, the growing middle class is very real. Um, you know, yeah. we, you know, those are, those are the people who make our pipes and, um, they make a really good wage. Well, it's and, only, yeah. I guess I'm old enough to know, to, to remember, like, um, yeah, I come from a very conservative family. Um, I want to get back and ask you about your, your trips over there, especially some of the first ones. But, um, when I was in, you know, in, a child and my, some of my first memories of going to visit, um, some relatives, you know, that back then it was Taiwan and Japan, you know, China wasn't even really, a uh, Japan mostly it was like those the products made in Japan. You know, there's always been a. I mean, that out, importing and outsourcing is has been a very has been a, you know 
rather volatile topic. And it's so funny that to me that the that in the eighties Japan was said in the same kind of way as China is now, and now um, when I get a electronic that was maybe engineered and made in Japan, it seems to be a more, like a higher quality than the United States. You know, at least implied. Um, it's so funny how that how quickly that changes. So I'm kind of wondering yeah and i've been noticing um kind of that a soft transition in that from china as well lately i mean as far as uh the either the um the quality of of um product i guess i'm noticing coming out and maybe it was that i wasn't paying attention all wrong or that they're transitioning as a culture to um, their their economy is changing, right? And 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 the uh, the products they're able to, to to make and develop, and the kind of the way they develop and make them with the United States has has changed over the oh, last ten years. I, I, I mean, is that correct? That... I don't mean this as a negative way you're saying at all. No, no. But I think that that is actually the most this is the worst common misperception. Sweet. And and this and, is what I wanted to get into. And, 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 and my because yeah. because my take is is that like show me a cheap China pipe, and I'll show you ten. Way cheaper, way oh, worse yeah. American pipes. I was talking across the board, not even not even just pipes, but like I guess that's a good example. But it's a good that's e- what we're in. It's yeah, the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we we live in this, right? Like, you know, the concept being like, you know, th- this this is this is the only parallel I have to draw. I don't know how many garbage coffee makers there are out there, yeah, right? That's true. Like it's I, the design, not necessarily or the yeah. It's it's the it's the fact that like you, you, you we th- we think that like you know we associate cheap things from coming from this one country and, and it's absurd to think that these you know that the quality of something is you know should be predetermined based on its origin like the 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 fact is that you can get cheap shitty products made anywhere in the world yeah it's an amazing phenomenon yeah. right call up <laughs> i can call up my neighbor you're right you know it's so funny and i kind of caught myself halfway through that sentence going like i think i'm talking out of my ass right now you know and i'm just like you're counting down like okay let me no, but talk. it's a great example of like the way that you know the hypocrisy of of the way that things are sold, especially in America, yeah. like you know, just to lump us lump us into this culture that buys cheap China crap, and yeah, there is plenty of it. Don't get me oh, wrong; yeah. I am not yeah. denying the fact that there is a shitload of cheap Chinese crap out there, but there is also a shitload of amazing Chinese manufactured goods out there. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I, I would just say, you know, I, I think that we, you know. I still don't like just, you know, lumping it into China because China is like not, it's, it's, you know, I I had a, I had an ex employee come to me at a trade show and go, yeah, man, you know, I think, I think I'm just going to call China and start buying stuff, you know, also just reselling it. Like, I think it was a little like, you know, shot it, shot in the gut to me, like, you know, fuck you. I can do what you do. It's like, yeah, yeah. Call up China here. I'll give you the number to call China, (laughs) the country and be like, hi, China, get me pipes. And and it's such a joke. There's so much more to it than that. You're seeing it, right? Like in order to, in, in order to be able to execute a really high quality product made anywhere, whether it's in China or, or, or Germany, you you have to go through a a very specific design and engineering process at home to make sure that the product that you're actually going to execute, you know, and and sustain yeah. is is going to 
uh, be executable in the first place. So I mean, forget um, about doing it in another country, and just just if you have ten guys in the same room, just right. you know, like yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, so so the fact that you're doing it overseas, you know, is is like I I just finally got my real a real window into what that means and how much work goes into it from my, my fucking sketch in the sketchbook to you know the actual first product you get to take to market and how long it's like a year you know yeah. could be i mean you've, you've gotten it much you've gotten it we aim we that. aim for eight months yeah from that, inception to 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 first, first and, run. and before i got in this process that would have been like god that's just way that's crazy it takes that long and now i'm just like it's amazing you do it that quick anyway um i'm um and it's one of the main reasons and um i wanted to go you know, and I talked to another, Steve Bates is going with us, and he was the same way. We talked about it on the phone. When you first kind of brought up this trip was that very important for us to put faces and heartbeats with th this, you know, outsourced labor that we've been talking about. And it had a problem, not a problem, but I had to think very, very, I had to think about it a lot. It was like, I'm, I'm. The main reason I'm going is to really get that real world experience as to what this means and what I'm a part of, you know. Um, so anyway, I'm I'm ex I'm excited about it and terrified, but more more about an 18 hour fucking plane flight than, <laughs> than the actual trip. But um, you know, it's exciting. Uh, so I mean, then you we we just went and got our visas together, and you were talking to him. He's like, "How many times have you been over there?" And you were like, 10 times." I was like. I think it's actually my twelfth. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's we're we're flying in style. Yeah. We, we got we <laughs> we got upgraded seats. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, but it doesn't it doesn't doesn't make it uh, that much more painless. It's still um, it's still a tough a tough trip. I mean, you're talking about um, you know a trip that we're going to be there for four days, and you know we're going to spend basically three of those traveling. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. Uh, we're going to be there for four days. We're gonna be gone for seven. seven three of yeah. three of the seven will be spent traveling. Yeah, no, I was uh, I did that math and was like, oh wow, yeah, crap. Yeah, that's a that's a whirlwind trip. And, and uh, Stephen and the other person on this trip, Stephen Pierce, was like, oh no, it's gonna be great. But you know, right about the time your clock resets and like we're feeling good, he's like, we're gonna be at that airport again, getting on the plane to go home. <laughs> it's like. Uh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah, it's a work trip. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, that's definitely, I mean, that's how I'm I'm treating it. And it's also, it's, as far as the first trip out of the country, I couldn't have picked kind of a more foreign culture, really, to, to do that in, though. That's going to be funny. Um, well, that's, that's cool. So that's, that kind of brings us up to, a bit up to date on, I mean, I, I mean, as far as the the outsourcing goes, I feel like you've given me a pretty good perspective as as far as your feelings on the on on everything that's involved in it. Um, yeah, I, I think that you know the only other thing I can say about it that I want to get in is that um, is that when from my experience when faced with the uh, you know as an entrepreneur and we see every day I see a new entrepreneur entering the consumption device industry, which is the industry we're in, like it or not. Um, they, you know, you, uh, you know, from a product design perspective, you need long-term sustainable design in order to build a future for yourself and your family and a future for your product. 
And I'm not saying that everybody needs to run off and get on Alibaba and learn you know, and, and outsource everything that they do. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I think that if you don't learn how to make the products that you are going to sell, that you will not succeed. Right. Period. Right. You, you are going, you, know, you cannot dial it in. It is not possible. You need to learn everything that there is to know about your medium before you ever even think about doing any outsourcing. That, um, that actually really hits home to me knowing that like, um, when it kind of goes back to what you said earlier, is like you can, there's, there's plenty of shitty designs or shitty products coming out. But it has a lot to do with the actual design going into it as well. And just because you oh, can yeah. make contact at at, an, in, at, a, at a glassblowing studio, whether it be China, Taiwan, anywhere on the planet or down the street, that's going to produce a product for you at a very cheap price. If you're giving them shit to produce, they're going to produce shit. And then you're in turn have to go sell shit, you know, to a shitty product and that's when you're in the longevity of what you're doing to run a successful business you just i mean you know empires are not built on piles of stink of shit you know you gotta you gotta be able to design something that is sustainable and marketable and so that's what's so interesting about what you've been able to do is that um it is all found it, it it's built on a foundation of good design or, or a business good design principles and sol solid design principles and solid uh I, I think solid business principles and ethics as well i mean i don't know about ethics i don't know you that well but uh <laughs> but uh, yeah, i think that, I, I think i do know you enough to know that that um that uh and then, i'm always uh, i think that, that, that it's interesting you bring up ethics yeah. because the the question of ethics is not in my opinion uh something that is so black and white and um the the truth is is that i i do think that i'm you know that we me and the company operate in a really ethical way and the way that i can say that with relative confidence is that i is that i surround myself with people who challenge me like yourself um like like Matt, like Tristan, like Kate, like Courtney, like mm -hmm. Sean, like like Stephen, um, and the list goes on. And and they, you know, it, by by surrounding your people yourself with people that challenge you, you will constantly be question, questioning the the decisions that you make and how they affect other people every single day. And um, you know, by surrounding yourselves with yourself with smart people, not only do you um, not only do you win ethically, but you uh, you prosper from it, and I'm uh, you know I can say that with uh, a lot of certainty. Well, um, you know we've been talking for a while, and we're kind of getting close to the end because um, we're almost to current day. Um, we've, we've jumped around a lot. Um, for me, it was really interesting to to, to understand where you came from, um, knowing that you do not fit the the stereotype of what some people think of as glass floor. I don't know if I do either. You know, I think that, um, you know, you, you, like you said, you were kind of the, the, more of a jock in high school or like more, more into sports and less into, you know, the Grateful Dead maybe, you know, and kind of weren't that kind of cookie cutter. This is also what people perceive the, the cannabis or uh, um, industry and the peripheral industry 
to be is, you know, just kind of those like a tide eyed freaking burnout, you know, and what's, what's happening is really people are really starting to look around and go like, holy shit, no. That was actually well, kind of. I should ahead. stop you and say that, like, I totally became a big fish head and string cheese oh, incident no, I person tried. in, in yeah. college. In college, I went nuts and got, you know, I had, you know, by the time I started well, this company, I had hair down to my ass and I was oh, really, really I like, oh, that. yeah. That'd so, um, so I should say that I had that moment, but, um, yeah. I, uh, but, but I just still don't really identify with the, 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 like, the skate, uh, the skate culture, the, the, um, the tattoo culture, right. um, the you know the, the the kind of you know the 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 sub culture of the you know that that pretty much dominates our industry and um, you know I, I mean I guess I shouldn't put it into a box like that but it you know but it, it's it's a lot of our target audience and um, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know it's it's hard for me to sit here and say that over the. <laughs> over the radio waves, but <laughs> I, um, but I, I do often feel like, uh, you know, uh, like an imposter, but I, you know, that's also informed my, my belief that the industry is far more than that, that yeah. we are now breaking molds with the, you know, with the social acceptance of cannabis on the, on the open market. And there are more and more people that are going to be way more influenced by design that's than right. they will. That's by, kind of what I was getting at. Hand. And that's what I think my, where our perspectives are aligning is, is kind of understanding that, that like with the growth of, of our, um, industry or the, the, with the, with the growth, growth of the kind of legal, just the legal perspective of, of our industry and the, in the marijuana industry also comes, the kind of um, the widening of the the people that are more comfortable dealing with it, or mm-hmm. the the widening of the of the consumer base of like the everybody that's been around this long enough knows that like your buddy's dad that's a lawyer still smokes a joint out on the back porch every weekend, and he wouldn't really be comfortable going down to the local head shop. But now that everything's legal, he would could definitely go to the nearest dispensary, pick up you know, whatever he wants in a pipe and not feel weird about getting caught by a client walking out the door, you know, and that's in a couple of states now. And that's just going to widen. And with that, you know, that that audience, that kind of tattooed subculture audience that we've been used to dealing with is still there. Um, but there's also this uh, a very much uh, the, the pie chart fucking that our wedge just kind of exploded and where you've got this whole other um, kind of... Um, you know, group of people, groups of people that are now going to be interested. Yep. Um, and uh, that's kind of exciting, you know. And um, the one thing I really, you know, and this may not make it into the final cut, that I really appreciate kind of as far as the perspective was kind of getting at with the ethical part before you... Um, took t- it over? <laughs> no, which is great. It was perfect, right? Um, it, was, it was kind of joking on my part. Uh because of what I've kind of seen happen, and what you what you think about when when uh, when people um, outsource is like you know when you see you hear it on the news and you think about it, you're like, oh, that factory shuts down and all those workers are unemployed and they got nowhere to go, and it's just devastating for the local glass blowing economy, you know. And I I think I I got to see Grab when it was still mostly in house, you know, and then evolved to the point where that's no longer the case, you know. But when I go into the studio. I don't necessarily see uh, fewer heads in there. And no, almost is, every single one of those people. Well, are still I wanted here. to get there and and how much I respect kind of what you've done with the facility. So instead of just laying people off and downsizing, you've kind of kept the facility and changed it and kind of giving your existing staff 
a way to um, move forward as, as makers individually, which is really hard. And it's a hard transition to go through to come from working for somebody to for yourself. And I've just seen you kind of go out of your way to um, help them at any moment. Um, and I don't know if, if, if anybody has ever really called you out for that outside of that studio or said, like, it's really interesting is that, I don't know, you, you just, you've, you've taken care of the people that kind of helped you build it, but from my perspective, and given them a real opportunity to do things on their own and enable and continue to help them do that. That's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if many people would have done it like that. Uh, and I'm really excited to, I just am lucky enough to have annexed a little chunk, uh, or, uh, um, production facility into a little studio with, um, Steven Pierce. We really just, yesterday plumbed the last gas line and i was like shit i think i have to pay rent now like this thing is built <laughs> you know like and um and how excited i am to coming from uh, penland school of crafts where i got a three-year residency and walking into a studio when i walked into the studio at penland i walked up to the school and i said with confidence i will never move into a studio better equipped at day one than i did just now and you fucked that all up with <laughs> with the studio that Stephen actually I got lucky because Stephen Pierce who was one of your um, kind of higher up design guys and glass blowers and is really a, an amazing engineer glass blower all in one he's amazing kind of got to build his almost little dream studio yep and then I got to piggyback on that you know <laughs> which was like Stephen kept coming to me and being like I think I want to do this you know and I'm just like I'm just thumbs up thumbs up whatever you want to do so. I'm excited because I'm, I feel like I'm getting a, um, I get a little grad school experience again in, um, business, um, kind of the, 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 the newly discovered, um, designer, it's always been there in me, but understanding what I really love and what I really love to do. And, and if there's a way that, um, I'm able to, I've, I've decided that if there's a way that I can be happy as a maker, it is by, um, finding a way to exist in that designer zone more, right? And maybe isn't quite making as much, you know, that R&D and design is where I excel and it's where I'm the happiest. And it's my mission to try to figure out a way to build a small business to keep me, or a way to keep me in, the, in that zone. And I think the way to do that right now is to build a small business. So I feel like I just get such, it is such a unique opportunity for me to be where I am and um, I don't know if I would ever get want to get to the scale of what you're doing, but it is. I am so lucky to be under this roof and kind of just just peripherally get to absorb what's going on because I think it's really exciting. I think that um, hopefully this podcast has given people a little more of a perspective into you as a as a human being instead of a Grab Labs as a as a company because I feel like there's a bit of a of a we get to know these um, individual artists, like the heady artists out there, the, the kind of the famous glassblowers. We get to know them a little more personally than we do the people behind a, a company. And it's unfortunate because I value my relationship with you as much as any of those people. And it always makes me a little uncomfortable to know that people don't get that same connection with you. So 
this new, we're all new to podcasting in, in these interviews. So hopefully it gave, we got enough out of this to give you guys a bit more of a perspective. But um, anyway, it's been really nice to get to know you. We're really glad we did this podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next, hopefully, five to ten years of, of hanging out around each other. So cheers. Likewise. Cheers. All right. Thanks, guys. Micah here again. Thanks uh, so much for tuning into the Torch Time podcast. Uh, I wanted to add a personal note at the end of this podcast about what has happened since we recorded this episode. Um, I was lucky enough to take a trip to China with Dave, um, a glassblower here named Stephen Pierce, and uh, Steve Bates to see firsthand how the sausage is made, so to speak. it was an unbelievable experience that I'm honestly still processing. Uh, during the interview with Dave, I faced the realization that I didn't really have a well-rounded perspective on this, the subject, having never been to China. And uh, this trip helped round that out. Uh, we toured a bunch of glass studios and a raw material production facility making tubing. Uh, it, was, it was pretty epic. Uh, even with that um, experience under my belt, the subject matter... Um, while I had a wider perspective, did did not simplify. Um, it may be it may have become even more complex. I hope at some point we can get all the guys that went on that trip uh, to sit down together on this podcast to talk about our uh, adventures in China. And uh, we did have some adventures. <laughs> Holy shit! Uh, letting a bunch of pipe makers drink rice wine and setting them loose on the streets, city streets in China, should be a damn TV show. Uh, anyhow, uh, what stuck with me were the friends I made, uh, the talented glassblowers I met, male, female, young, old, uh, connecting with it, with these people halfway around the world in person, eating with them, meeting their families and seeing the day-to-day life in, um, in a country going through an extremely rapid change uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, was really a life-changing experience for me sure made the world seem smaller, and um, I am so, so glad I did it. Anyhow, um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It uh, is a good kind of window into the diversity of the hosts, and um, uh, there'll be much more to come from all of us. Um, please uh, make sure to tune in to the next episode where Salt, uh, Lucan, and I uh, sit down with Snick. Snick Barnes, um, and uh, kind of hear his story about his origins and kind of uh, the state of, you know, him and this industry today. It was a really great interview. We really enjoyed it. So make sure to tune in for that. Hopefully we get that up soon. Thanks again for being patient. We'll try to get these out weekly, but um, just know that they're coming if not. Um, And once again, thanks for tuning in to the Torch Time Podcast. We'll see you next time.